you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to open to Luke chapter 24, and I'm going to invite Stephanie to come, and she is going to read our passage for us today, and if she looks extra happy and smiley, it's because her oldest son was baptized at the first service, so yeah, it's a good day. So let's and open our hearts because the tomb is empty. And because the tomb is empty. Well, <laughs> happy Easter. Yes. Way to, way to upstage me, Stephanie. Thanks. That's good. <laughs> now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what is this dispute that you were having with each other as you were walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked them. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. Amen. Lord, we ask that this time, these next few minutes of looking at the scriptures would be profitable to us and that our hearts would be stirred with the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, for myself, I pray that you would uh, guard my words and guide my speech, that I would only teach that which is in line with the truth of your scripture. And Lord, would you give each one of us receptive hearts to hear what it is that you have for us today. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. The weather forecast was supposed to be raining all weekend, but I had hope. And it is beautiful sunshine out there today. Is anybody happy about this sunshine? Like it, it finally feels like maybe a little bit of spring after snow and sleet and icy wind whipping across the, the, the mean streets of Linwood. And uh, this, this last week has been just like, when is spring ever going to come? And it finally feels like it's here. And so I'm hopeful. And spring is the season of hope, is it not? You can't help but feel a little bit hopeful when you start to feel the warmth in the air. You start to see, you know, branches that have looked dead start to bud with new life. I grew up in Alaska. This is the time of year when all the snow would melt and reveal all of the, like, gravel and, and dog products that were, like, under, hidden under the snow. A little bit more hopeful here. It's a little bit greener. I like it here. But you, it's, this time, it's this time of year when we all start to have hope stirred in our hearts. And, and hope really just simply defined means you have a vision or you have a dream for a better future. Hope is kind of future-oriented. You're looking forward to something, and you're looking forward to it being better than what is currently your reality. Now, sometimes that hope is based on something in reality, right? You can see certain signs, you can see certain indicators that things are moving in a certain direction. And so you've got some hope, right? It's it's the signs of spring. The days are getting longer. Things are getting warmer. I've got hope. Sometimes hope, though, is not grounded in anything that you can see or anything that you know to be true. For example, just last week, I found myself, foolish I know, hoping that the Mariners make the playoffs this year. And 
it's ever since I met my wife in high school and uh, she told me I had to be a Mariners fan. Thank you, darling. Uh, I have been hoping because that was the first the year I, uh, the first year I really paid attention to the Mariners was 2001. And they won like a lot of games that year or something, like a record amount of games. And then they've been awful ever since. I'm like, what have you tricked me into? So hope is some sort of future orientation. And it's a thing that fuels us. We need hope in our life. We need hope. We need something to look forward to because without it, we become aimless. We become, we become just kind of flatlined. How many times over these last two, two plus years of the pandemic or, or all of the different unrest in our society or all of the bad news about inflation and gas prices and war in Ukraine, have you found yourself like hoping for some sort of good news? hoping for someone to, you know, some, some sort of press release to come down from on high saying, everything is better. We fixed it all. Everything is good. Solomon, in the book of Proverbs, he wrote that when hope is delayed, it makes the heart sick. It's interesting that these events of what we call Passion Week, Jesus' triumphal entry and his Last Supper and his crucifixion, ultimately his resurrection, all of these events happened in the springtime. And I wonder if, I don't know, but I wonder if some of that springtime optimism, some of that springtime feeling of hope found its way into the followers of Jesus' hearts. They had all this hope for what he was doing, all this hope for how things could be. And then how awful it must have felt to have their hopes dashed on that Friday afternoon as Jesus breathed his last. Go back to verse 17 uh, in Luke chapter 24. Luke, the, the doctor, the biographer, he writes this. He says, these guys are walking, or these, these two disciples are walking on the road, and the stranger comes up to them, and the stranger, it's Jesus. The stranger comes up to them, and he said, what's, what's this conversation you guys are having with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him. By the way, Cleopas, um, There's two disciples. We only get the name of one. We only get the name of Cleopas. The other disciple is not named. And people speculate about who the other disciple is. There's kind of two main theories that biblical scholars put forth. The first one is, people say that it might actually be Luke himself. That Luke was walking on the road with Cleopas, but in humility and deference, he decided not to name himself. Which I find funny because John did not practice that same humility and deference in his gospel. When John's writing his gospel, he's like, and then Peter and John were racing to the tomb, and John was way faster than Peter. Peter, that slowpoke. So I don't know, maybe Luke was a little bit more humble, a little bit more deferential, and didn't name himself. The other theory is that it's actually a a disciple named Mary, the wife of Cleopas, because in John's gospel, we see Clopas and Mary. Mary's a very common name. There's like 4,000 of them in the New Testament. There's a lot of women named Mary. And uh, scholars say that, well, it's probably a husband and wife because it says that they were on a road trip and they were arguing. So I don't know. (laughs) I share that with you. You guys can discuss it. I don't know which one it is. Either way, these are devoutly Jewish people who had a lot of hope set on Jesus as the Messiah. So they're walking along. Jesus comes up, says, what's going on? Cleopas says, are you the, like, have you been under a rock? Are you the only person in all of Jerusalem who does not know what has happened here these last few days? And Jesus, he, the stranger to them, says, what things? Don't you just love Jesus playing dumb? Like, I just think that is so funny. He's like, who am I? What, what, tell me, what's going on, guys? He's just, act, he's, he's trying to draw out of them their feelings. And they said to him, 
Concerning Jesus, the guy from Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to the Roman government to be condemned to death, and then they crucified him. And here it is. We had hoped that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. In that sentence is a summary of the first 39 books of the Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, what's commonly referred to as the Old Testament. So there's a whole storyline of how we got to this moment. Jesus just doesn't show up randomly. The storyline, if you start at the beginning of the Bible, it tells a story of God creating a world out of love and out of joy and a world of beauty, a world of relationship. He made all things good. There's abundance. There's potential And he created humanity to partner with him, to rule and reign with him. But then you can't get more than a few pages into the Bible before you see that humanity chooses the path of selfishness. Humanity says to God, no, we want to live life on our terms, defining right and wrong for ourselves, and and we can do a better job of running things than you can. Thank you, God. And because of that, Everything has been messed up. Human relationships have been messed up. There's, there's, there's this, this force called sin that's been unleashed into the whole world. And the Bible even speaks about the fact that nature itself, the environment itself has become messed up and subject to decay because of humanity's failure to live up to our created design. And so the Bible tells a story of God choosing a particular family, a particular people group to be a blessing. God says, I'm going to work with the family of Abraham. I'm going to use Abraham's offspring, and I'm going to work with them. I'm going to teach them what I'm like. I'm going to help them grow to be like me, and they're going to go out into all of the world, and this family is going to be my people of blessing. Every nation under the sun will be blessed through this family, through this people group. But if you keep reading through the Old Testament, again, you can't get very far before you realize that God's people become corrupt as well. They're supposed to be a light to the nations. They're supposed to be a people of justice and mercy and generosity. And instead, they practice idolatry and oppression and all of the same things that the other nations are doing. And so God eventually brings his discipline on them and they're taken into exile. Now, the people get to come back. They eventually get to come back to their homeland, but they are ruled over by a succession of of just one tyrannical government after another, culminating in Rome. Rome is ruling over the people. The most brutal, the most powerful, the largest empire the world has ever known. Trust me, I watch a lot of documentaries about ancient empires. Rome was bad, okay? They were, they ruled with an iron fist. They called it the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. You know how they, how they enforced it? Put a sword up to your neck and say, be peaceful or else we will make you dead. It's pretty easy to rule over people with that kind of fear. And so here are the people of Israel living out this long story, this long uh, calling as a people group that we're supposed to be a blessing to everyone. How are we supposed to be a blessing to everyone when we can't even experience peace in our own homeland? And the, the, the prophets, these writers and these preachers started to speak of a promised deliverer, that God was going to send somebody. And when they showed up, this somebody was going to make things right. Prophets like Isaiah started to say things like, you know, when the Messiah shows up, Blind people are going to see again. And people who can't walk are going to start dancing like a, like a deer. 
And prophets like Zechariah said, when this king shows up, he's not going to be like the oppressive overlord. You know, he's going to be a humble king. He'll, he'll ride on a donkey, not a big war horse. He'll be humble and riding on a donkey. So what does Jesus do? Jesus shows up and starts performing these miracles. Blind people see. Poor people are, are, are cared for. Hungry people are fed. People who can't walk can suddenly walk again. He rides into town on a donkey. Friends, you need to understand that the actions and the miracles of Jesus are not just random displays of power. These aren't magic tricks that he was doing to impress people. He is intentionally triggering all of the hopes of the people of Israel. He's doing these things on purpose to say, you should put your hope in me. You should look at me as the fulfillment of all of those hopes and dreams that you've had for so many years. So imagine that joy. Imagine that hope that you have. Being there in Jerusalem, watching him ride into town on a donkey, you're like, yes, the Messiah is here. He is going to kick Rome's backside, and we're going to finally have things be the way they are supposed to be. And then imagine that Friday afternoon watching him nailed to a Roman cross. Luke writes in the chapter previously, he said, all the crowds that had gathered for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they went home striking their chests with grief. But all who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. And T. Wright, who's a biblical scholar, writes this. He says, they had hoped that Israel would be redeemed, that God would purchase her freedom. They hoped that Israel would be liberated once for all from pagan domination, free to serve God in peace and holiness. That's why the crucifixion was so devastating. It wasn't just that Jesus had been the bearer of their hopes uh, and, and that was now dead and gone. It was even sharper than that. If Jesus had been the one to redeem Israel, he should have been defeating the pagans, not dying at their hands. See, these people had been reading prophets like Isaiah. And Isaiah, you know, when he talks about the servant of the Lord who's going to show up, he paints a portrait of him as victorious. Isaiah, if you go back in your Old Testament, Isaiah 52, he writes this. He says, be joyful, rejoice together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He's redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord displayed his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. All the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. In the ancient world, when somebody became a king, they would have their coronation ceremony or their inauguration ceremony. The throne would be put up on a very high place and they would walk up the steps and they would sit on that throne, a very high and lifted up sort of place so that everyone could see. That sounds pretty awesome, doesn't it? That sounds like, yeah, the servant will be successful. He's going to win. He's going to deal with all of our political problems and we're going to have freedom and peace once and for all. And, and friends, by the way, lest we look down on these ancient people, um, have we ever put our hopes in politics? Have you ever hoped in a politician? I mean, for crying out loud, the entire uh, Barack Obama campaign was literally, it was just a, the big word hope, like just hope. Like We know that that's how politics works. Finally, this politician will be the one that will make my life perfect. Maybe you never said it quite that bluntly, but we're tempted to trust in leaders and rulers and big, important public figures to make our lives better. It's, it's, it's just nothing new under the sun. See, one of the reasons why their hopes were so dashed is they... We're looking at this portion of Isaiah's prophecy 
But maybe they were not looking as closely at the next chapter in Isaiah, like Isaiah 53, where it says this, this, this servant is pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. We all went astray like sheep. We've all turned to our own way. The Lord actually punished him because of all of our iniquity. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. Oppression and judgment. The, the, God's people are doing the same oppression and judgment that the other nations were doing. And who considered his fate? He was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion, yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. It's not just Rome who was acting unjustly and wrong. It was God's people as well. And friends, when you consider the world and the problems of the world, it's not just those bad people out there doing bad things. You have to have a moment of honesty and look in the mirror and realize you don't live up to your own standard as well. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We all are deserving the righteous condemnation of the Lord. We all, like Adam and Eve in the garden, every single one of us at some point has chosen the path of selfishness instead of the path of following God, the rightful creator and Lord of all things. Every single one of us has done this. And God, we could pray, say, God, why don't you just show up and destroy all those oppressive, wicked people? But if we're honest, then we have to say, oh, wait, that's me too. I have not been just. I have not been righteous. I have not been moral. I haven't even lived up to my own standards, much less the standards of a perfectly holy God. But see, Isaiah 53 tells us that God's plan to send this servant, yes, he would be victorious. Yes, he would be raised up and lifted up, but it wouldn't be the way that the other nations do it. When he's raised up and he's lifted up, he'll be lifted up on a cross. That he will bleed and he will die to bear the punishment that we deserve. That God's plan to set Israel free, God's plan to redeem Israel, wasn't a political conquest, it was a spiritual one. That though Rome was a great enemy, there's an even greater enemy of sin and death. And Jesus was taking those enemies on head on in his crucifixion. And I think if we're trying to relate to this as well, we can see that sometimes the thing you hope for is not the thing you actually need. Sometimes the thing you have put all that hope in, all that stock in, isn't ultimately what you need. These people had put all their stock in a political revolutionary leader, and what God knew that they needed was a crucified Savior. The problem is, too, when your hope is misdirected like that, you miss out on some of the really good stuff, because they could have kept reading in Isaiah 53, where then it says... After God made him, this servant, a guilt offering, he will see his seed, his offspring. He, God, will prolong the servant's days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, after he has suffered, after he's gone through all those things, he will see light and be satisfied. Wait, there's, there's, a, there's a hope coming on the other side of the suffering, Isaiah says, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. The prophet was saying something good is going to happen on the other side of all that suffering. And that's exactly what happens on, on that first Easter morning. Go back with me to Luke chapter 24. This is the morning. This is not the afternoon road trip. This is the morning. It says in the very first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, these, this group of women, these disciples of Jesus, bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb 
they went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, and I find that to be just a great understatement. Yeah, I get perplexed when I open the drawer in my entryway and I can't find my keys. I'm like, where are my keys? Uh, Which one of my teenagers stole them, right? Like that's perplexed. I've never gone looking for a dead body and not been able to find it. I think you'd be more than just perplexed. I really haven't looked for a dead body. I just want that on the record. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. That's a biblical angel right there. That's a right proper angel. Uh, No chubby fat baby cherubs. That is not angels. That is not in the Bible anywhere. They're either men who scare the bejangles out of people or weird creatures covered in eyes and wings. That's a biblical angel. Put that at the top of your Christmas tree. Anyways, that was not in my notes. That's free of charge. I'm moving on. So these angels are there. The women were terrified. They bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? asked the men. He's not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee saying it was necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified and rise on the third day? And they remembered his words. It's like, it's like the angels are saying, like, remember everything that Jesus was telling you? He told you he was going to redeem Israel. He told you it was going to come through his suffering, his death, but ultimately his resurrection. He warned you and they're like, Oh yeah, he did. Back to the afternoon road trip now. Cleopas and the other one talking with the stranger. Verse 21, we were hoping that he was going to be the one about to redeem Israel. Besides all these things, it's the third day since this, this happened. And, and what's even more, some women from our group, they, they, they astounded us. They went really early in the morning to the tomb, and when they couldn't find his body, they came and reported that they saw a vision of some angels who said he was alive. He he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb, and they found it just like the women had said. They should have just believed them, but they didn't see him. And and Jesus, now remember, he's still a stranger at this point, and he says this, how foolish and slow you are, right? You You ever been called foolish and slow by a stranger? to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary? Didn't the prophets tell us it was necessary for this Messiah, the servant, to go through all this suffering first before entering into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them all things in concerning himself in all the scriptures. That's a much longer summary of the Old Testament than I just did a few minutes ago, Okay. They're on this road trip. He's explaining everything to them. Verse 28, they came near the village where they were going and he gave the impression that he was going to keep on going farther. But they said, well, stay with us. It's, it's nighttime. It's almost night and the day is almost over. You don't want to be traveling in these rural areas at night. They didn't have headlamps back then. Headlamps are cool. Every man needs a right proper headlamp in his life. They didn't have those. You're going to get robbed. Stay with us because it's almost evening. And so he went in to stay with them. And it was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread He blessed him and broke it and gave it to them, just like we celebrated on Friday night with the Lord's table. The broken bread and the cup that's shared, the broken body of Jesus and his blood that was poured out. And as he did this, their eyes were open and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. I love the weird parts of the Bible. I don't understand that. I don't know exactly what happened, but I love it. I think it's great. 
he disappeared from their sight. And they said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us when he was talking on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? So that very hour, they ignored their own advice about not traveling at night, and they got up and they returned to Jerusalem. They found the 11, that's the remaining disciples minus Judas, and those who were with them gathered together, and they said, the Lord has truly been raised and appeared to Simon. Peter saw him. And then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. And the rest, as you might say, is history. These disciples went out and started spreading the news that Christ is indeed risen, that sin and death have been defeated. It's not just Rome that's been defeated. It is death itself has been conquered over because of the work of the suffering servant, because of the work of the Messiah. And friends, If you're a follower of Jesus, this is our hope. This is our ultimate hope. The Apostle Paul, one of the later followers of Jesus, he writes about this in 1 Corinthians 15. We read it earlier in our liturgy, but he says this. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. What we are doing right now is a big waste of time. It's worthless. And you're still in your sins. You're just a a broken person, no hope. And even those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ have just perished. They're gone. If we have put our, here's our word, hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. See, friends, the hope of the gospel, the hope of Jesus Christ is not just that Jesus is a good example to follow, that we might learn how to live a really good moral life. The hope of the gospel is not that you get invited to a really cool social club. You're not that cool. I love you, but you're not that cool. The hope of the gospel is not just, well, it gives me like a warm feeling inside. No, the hope of the gospel is that Christ is raised. And if Christ is raised, we also get to be raised. Verse 20, as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. This is the hope of the gospel, that like Christ, he's the first fruits, he's the first one, he's the the first bud on the branch, and there's a lot more coming. His body was placed into the ground like a seed, and on that third day, it burst forth in glory, and he has died. He will never die again. He lives forever, and all who put their faith in him, the promise of the gospel is that we will live with him forever as well. That's a lot better than putting your hope in a politician. That's a lot better than putting your hope in a financial you know, economic improvement. That's a lot better than putting your hope in medical advancement. That's a lot better than putting your hope in any sports team. (laughs) We have hope for this life and for the next. The hope that Jesus offers us is better than any other hope. So what are you hoping for? Maybe your hope is related to your past Maybe there's things in your past that you wish could just go away and be done with forever. In Christ, your past is redeemed. Your past sins are forgiven. Your past sorrows are given a new hope. Is it your present circumstances? Now listen, Jesus never promises to just make everything super easy. In fact, he says, in this world, you will have trials. But you know what he promises in your present hardships? He promises to be with you to offer you peace and joy and hope and love and grace beyond anything else. 
What is it for your future? You hoping for some, you know, retirement? You hoping for some new technology to be released? You're hoping for work? You're hoping for whatever you might, you're hoping to find a spouse? You're hoping for something in the future? In Christ, we are offered the hope of eternal life. And so the idea here is to trust in him. It starts with an act of repentance. It starts by acknowledging the bad news, what Isaiah talked about and what Jesus talked about, that like we've all sinned. We've all gone astray. We've all chosen that path of selfishness and not the path of following Jesus. Every single one of us, no one can stand before the Lord with a clean slate. But in that act of repentance, Jesus is no begrudging Savior. We sang about it earlier. His, the, the Father's arms are open wide. Jesus went to the cross, the book of Hebrews tells us, with joy in his heart. When you come and you ask for that forgiveness, God doesn't say, well, I guess so if I have to. He says, what took you so long? The heart of love that God has for those who come to him in repentance and faith, he will never turn away. So there's a repentance there's a trust, there's a mending of the relationship, and there's a public act, a pledging to say, I am going to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. And that's what we're about to celebrate in the waters of baptism. You know, the, the word baptism is one of uh, uh, two practices that the Lord Jesus himself gave to us. The Lord's Supper, which we practiced on Friday night. Baptism, which we're going to practice today. And the earliest Christians, they started using this word about baptism. They started using a word called sacrament. Roman word, Latin word, sacramentum. And uh, I recently came across some scholarship that really helped me understand why that word has so much more meaning than we thought. The word sacramentum was originally used as a pledge of Roman soldiers. When Roman soldiers would sign up for the army, they would pledge a sacrament. They would actually give money and pledge a sacrament to Caesar. And they would have to take an oath that says, Caesar is Lord. He is my boss. He gets to tell me where I go and what I do. I'm a soldier in Caesar's army. I pledge a sacrament to him. Well, the earliest Christians started saying, hey, when we get into these waters of baptism, we're pledging a sacrament to a higher Lord. Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. He died. He rose again. He gets all of me for this life and in the life to come. And as we practice baptism, we're going to get to see um, some young men and women today who have made that pledge for themselves. And this just delights me, just as a personal note. We see this, these waters of baptism, these youth. We had, uh, I believe, seven people get baptized at the first service. We have another handful at this service. We actually have two more who couldn't be here today, so I think we're going to fill the water up next week and just baptize some more people. It's going to be awesome. I don't know which service it's going to be at. But it reminds me of my own baptism. I came to faith in Jesus at a young age. I was baptized at a pretty young age. And uh, I, 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 you know, I was young, and of course my faith has grown and matured over the years, but I knew what I was doing. And I get to watch these young men and women do the same sort of thing, and just my heart's filled with joy. And for those of you who have, by God's grace, been baptized, I wonder if you would remember your baptism during this time. Think back to that moment. Think back to that day and the hope that you had of making that public pledge to Jesus. Friends, Christ is risen. We have hope for this life and for the life to come. And I am beyond excited to see and to celebrate these people pledging that public trust in Jesus. Will you pray with me? Let's pray for them. Lord, we thank you that the tomb is empty. 
We thank you that we don't serve a dead religious founder or follow a, a dry, dusty book of rules. We serve a living and resurrected Savior, the one who has offered us truer, deeper hope than anything we could have ever imagined. And Lord, I pray a blessing in this time now over those who are about to be baptized and publicly pledge this commitment to you in front of, in front of you, in front of all these witnesses. And we sing and we celebrate and we clap and we cheer and we're so grateful for the hope that you offer us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen.